Does anybody here live in a neighborhood or a, a condo or apartment complex that has a homeowners association with kind of a list of rules you had to say yes to? Yep, kind of sign your life away. I've done a little bit of research on some of these, and it's interesting. Some of the homeowners associations, they can fine you. That's pretty typical. If you don't do something, you know, your grass isn't the right height, your mailbox is of the wrong color, you park a, a car in your driveway and you're not supposed to, they can give you a fine. Some of them actually have it in there that if you fail repeatedly to live up to the homeowners association, they can take your house. Isn't that shocking? And this happens. I'm, I'm surprised in this country it stands up in court. Um, maybe it doesn't in certain instances. But some of the things are very normal. Like I said, just keeping the yard looking nice, you know, not being ridiculous with your treatment of the neighbors. Some of these things make sense. They want to maintain a certain quality of life. They want you to be respectful to your neighbors. Sometimes they get out of hand. I read a story of one homeowner who received the fine for having an oil stain in his driveway. Okay, maybe a little nitpicky. Car had leaked oil, stained the driveway, didn't look good in the neighborhood, so he hired somebody to come in and clean it up. The next day, he received another fine because now the spot that was cleaned is a different color than the rest of the driveway. That's harsh. This one's my favorite. A homeowner was out of town, and on a Friday, the FedEx company came to deliver a package, and of course, they weren't there, so they did what they always did. They wrote up a little slip, stuck it to their door, said, hey, we tried to deliver your package. You're not here. When the homeowner returned on Sunday, they had two notices stuck to their door. One was the FedEx notice. The other was from the homeowners association, fining them because they're not allowed to have notices stuck on the door. Let that sink in for a second. They stuck a notice on the door to tell them you're not allowed to have a notice on the door. Genius. Now again, I get it. But sometimes these things can be taken so far. They get to the point that the head of the homeowners association or, or the people that are responsible for carrying these things out there, they're going around the neighborhood looking, you know, maybe with a clipboard. How tall is the grass? How many trees do they have? Have they clipped them? Have they picked up? Is there a car? Is it parked the right place? I heard of one where the couple was fined for uh, not having a tree. They needed a tree in a certain place and they didn't have it. And the stipulation was it had to be, I think it was within 60 and 70 inches from a certain spot, like from the curb. They put the tree in, very diligent, got another fine the next day. It was 58 inches. Wow, 58, two inches they missed where to put this tree. Things get out of hand. If you know anything about Scripture, you know that it is filled with a lot of do this, don't do that. There are rules. There are regulations in Scripture. If we are the people of God, it says this is how you are to live. And a lot of people approach those things and they say, it's like that homeowners association. It's like God's just out to get us. And, and he has this clipboard and, oh my goodness, you didn't do that. And here's your fine. Here's your infraction. I'm not going to bless you today or worse, you know, something bad's going to happen. And they live their life day to day hoping that they can please the great homeowner association in the sky. Is this the way God works? Today, as we continue our study in Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, all the way through chapter 5, verse 2. 
And Paul gives this community of the church, he gives them several things that they are to do. Specifically, he says several things they're to stop doing, things they're to start doing, and he gives reasons why. And we can come to a list like this and see it as very legalistic. Now, I'm guessing this is a list that nobody's going to struggle with or nobody's going to think these are ridiculous things. They're pretty typical things. But why? Why as Christians are we to live this way? Why are we to treat each other this way? Let me read the passage for you just to put it all in front of us. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to use it, borrow it, take it if you want to. The part about not stealing in here doesn't apply to that. We'll get to that in a second. Chapter 4, verse 25 of Ephesians. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I love preaching through scripture passage by passage. I think that's important. But one of the dangers in that is that every passage, especially in a letter like Ephesians, every passage builds into the next one. And so sometimes when we jump in, we can miss the flow of thought that's been going on. And if this is your first time here joining us, you've missed the rest of it before. And if you're like me, you probably forget the rest of it that came before. So let's review a little bit. In chapter 1, Paul lays out the superiority of Jesus Christ. He says, All of God's plan and purpose in creation and all of his sovereign acts throughout all of history are all centered on, focused on Jesus Christ. And then he moves into chapter 2 and he says, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins. We are brought to new life only through Jesus Christ. In the middle of chapter 2, he moves into talking about this new community of the church. He says, this gathering of people saved by Christ, we're different. We're not like anything else in the world. We are identified by Christ's work in us. And then he moves on into chapter 3 and he talks about his own ministry. He says it's for this purpose of sharing salvation, of inviting people into this new community that Paul spends his life traveling around the Roman Empire, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, suffering on behalf of those that he seeks to win to Christ. And then he goes in chapter 4 and he applies this to the church. And he says just as he was called, so they have been called. They have a role to share Christ with others. They have a role to use the gifts and the the abilities that Christ has given them to not only live and demonstrate the gospel, but to share the gospel with those who do not believe. 
And then we get to the second half of chapter 4 that we've been talking about the past couple weeks. He says, since this is all true, since you've been brought from death to life, since you're a part of this new community, you have to live different. If a dead person could be brought back to life, it would make no sense for them to continue acting as if they're dead. That's how extreme the change is when we are saved by Jesus Christ. We are made completely new. We must live and act different, not to earn the change that Christ has accomplished, but to live out the faith and the trust in, the, in what he has already done. And so now he gets into some very specific things. And what I want us to look at in the context of this passage is that Paul is telling them to put off the old way, put off other ways of thinking, and put on their faith in Jesus Christ and how that's supposed to exhibit itself in their lives. So he looks at six things. We're going to try. Oh, man, we're going to move quick. Okay. So he starts with speaking the truth. Chapter 4, verse 25. What he tells them to put off is falsehood, lying, and speak truthfully to your neighbor. And he says, for we are all members of one body. Now, it's important right away in this passage to understand the context in which these relationships are taking place. Everything that is said in this passage says, speak truthfully, don't lie. He's talking about don't sin in your anger, don't steal. Everything that he says in this passage applies in every situation of life. Okay, But the context within which Paul is writing here and throughout the rest of Ephesians is in the church. That's important as we follow his train of thought. I'm not, please hear me, okay? Somebody's going to go out and say, pastor said I can't lie to Christians, but everybody else, it's okay. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying, okay? But he is making a point about what goes on in the church. He says, for we are all members of one body. So look at what he's saying. Get rid of lying. Get rid of saying things that are not true. Put on this attitude of speaking truthfully and the actions of always telling the truth. But it's not just because there's a rule on the wall or on a clipboard and this is the right thing to do and you better do it. He's grounding it in the work of Christ. He says, for we are all members of one body. He's gone to great lengths throughout the book of Ephesians to talk about this new reality in Christ that we are a part of, that we have been brought into this body, this church that is to work together, hands, feet, head, all of it working together. So for a Christian to lie to another Christian would be like me reaching out for a doorknob, finding it scalding hot, meaning there's a fire on the other end, and my hand lying to the rest of my body and saying, nope, it's cool, go on in. Could you imagine that? My hand wouldn't do that because my hand has a vested interest in where my body goes, right? If it's hot, my hand tells my brain, hey, whoa, hold on, this hurts. And my brain goes, that means there is a fire. And my brain talks to my feet and says, stop, don't go through there. That's how it works together. So if we lie to one another in the body, we are living out the idea that we don't truly believe that we are part of one body. Do you see the difference there? It's grounded in our identity in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Paul's not just flying off and and spouting good things that we need to believe in. He is taking Old Testament teaching and applying it to the church. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. Let me just go over this for you. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but you can write it down, look at it later. 
In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16, this prophecy is of God's redemption of his people, their salvation. They're going through a really, really tough time. And in this passage, he says that he will restore his people. He will bless them. They will blow, grow old with peace and with children playing. That's Zechariah 8, 4, and 5. This future peace that they're certainly not uh, going through right now in, in that time. He says he will dwell among them, Zechariah 8, verse 3 and verse 9. Also in this reference of the building of the temple, his presence will be with them. And then verses 14 through 17, he says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Stop there for a second. You might be thinking, Dave, you just come on. He says, speak the truth. I get it. Speak the truth. Look at the passage here. This prophecy in Zechariah is that God is going to deliver his people And then he says, here's what you are to do. If you truly believe that I am going to deliver you, here's how you will live. Zechariah 8, verse 16, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. So Paul, as the great rabbi that he was, as the great Old Testament scholar that he was, He's bringing these things to mind and he's saying, our Lord promised our deliverance a long time ago. Jesus Christ has come and saved us. We are part of the new community that is to live out that salvation and he's applying these things. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2. In case you're thinking I'm going too far with this. Chapter 2 verse 15 In the middle of the verse, he says his purpose, this is Christ's purpose in the church, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So he's created this new reality, this thing called the church. And then go down to verse 19 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Listen to what Paul's saying. He's going back into the Old Testament and he's looking at these prophecies and saying, God promised to deliver us and to live among us. And he has clearly in the first half of Ephesians taught that that's exactly what happened in Jesus Christ. And when we are saved, God's presence, his Holy Spirit, one of the Sunday school classes talked about that this morning, his Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. We become a living temple living demonstration of the presence of God. And so now he's applying that and he's saying, if that's true and God's presence is among us, there's this rich testimony of what that looks like. Speak truth. If we speak lies to each other, it's not just bad. It's not just hurtful. It is a denial of the reality of what Jesus Christ has done in us. Do you see the difference between the homeowners association? Some of you maybe were raised in very legalistic church environments or maybe very legalistic non-church environments. And you were just beat over the head with do this, don't do that. I'm here to tell you, 
The do this and don't do that comes from what Christ has already done and continues to do in us. It is merely an expression of faith. Speak the truth. Let's go to the second one. He talks about controlling anger. Look at verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. The Greek there literally in verse 26 is be angry, but don't sin. It's not wrong to be angry. It's dangerous. It's not wrong. There are things sometimes as Christians we should probably be more angry about. And again, addressing the the family of faith here, the church, there are times in the church we should be angry with a brother and sister because they are walking in a way that denies the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are hurting other people and we should be angry. But he gives us a warning. Don't sin in your anger. And he gives us a way to deal with that. Don't let the sun go down. Don't let it fester. Don't let it go on. Deal with it appropriately at the right time. And then again, he has a quote. Actually, the whole thing, uh, beginning of verse 26, is a quote. Turn with me to Psalm 4. In Psalm 4, the psalmist is crying out to God because of a difficulty that's going on. And the psalmist is going to speak, and then the Lord is going to respond, and he's going to address the nation. Psalm chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people, this is the Lord now responding, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now again, notice the context. They're in a difficult time. They're crying out for salvation. The Lord answers and says, I'm sending salvation. My righteous one will bring salvation. Verse 4, tremble and do not sin. The Hebrew word there for tremble means to shake violently out of a response of either anger or sorrow. Paul's clearly taking it in the way of anger when he quotes it. Tremble and do not sin. God is saying to his people, you're right. It stinks right now. The world is rough. Things are not going your way. You're angry. I get it. It's okay to be angry. Don't let that crossover into sin. So again, Paul's thinking about the church and he's applying these prophecies and these statements from the Old Testament. Go back to Ephesians 4. And again, he brings in a powerful point of theology to drive this home. And do not give the devil a foothold. A foothold is an opening. It's an opportunity. When we lash out in anger, when we hold on to bitterness and anger, we are giving an opening for the devil, not just in our lives, but in the collective church. It's interesting to think about when the devil came to Adam and Eve, what was it he tempted them with? He said, if you take this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we've talked about that a lot. And I truly believe in the Hebrew, the concept is not just knowing, being aware of, it is the right to determine. It is an authoritative right to determine what is right and wrong. He says, you'll be like God. It was an overthrowing of God's authority. That was the temptation. Our anger offers us the same temptation. 
It is an opportunity for Satan to say that if we sin, we can get what our anger desires. Oh, we'll stick it to that person. doesn't matter if the means to get there is wrong. If we have righteous anger and a righteous outcome, doesn't matter what comes in between, even if it's sin. That's what gives Satan a foothold. Even if the result is appropriate or the reason for the anger is just, it is wrong to use sin to achieve it because this is a denial of God's authority and a lack of faith in his work. So again, this what seems to be a very simple way to live, and your anger do not sin, Paul's saying this comes out, what, out of what you believe to be true because of what Jesus Christ has done. The third thing he talks about is that we are to meet needs. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So the thing they are to stop doing is stealing. The thing they are to do is to work hard. And the reason is so they can share with others. Now, this one's interesting because, again, if, and and you're free to disagree with me on this, but if in this passage Paul is addressing relationships within the church, it means that within the church they were stealing from each other. That's kind of hard to believe. What, were they going into each other's houses and taking things? Were they you know, sitting and, and picking out of people's purses in church? I, I don't know. Now, again, I'm sure, please hear me, I'm sure Paul would say it's wrong to steal from anybody. Okay, He's not saying it's okay to steal from everybody else, just not within the church. It's wrong across the board. But he's dealing here in relationships within the church. So what is going on? And so as I found this pattern throughout this passage of Paul tying into the Old Testament and tying those things into the New Testament reality of who we are in Christ, I asked myself, is there a place in Scripture where Paul is talking, or I'm sorry, where Scripture talks about God's redemption and salvation of his people and he mentions, don't steal? And I found it. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Take a left past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go past Matthew, just a few pages, and you'll hit Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is the Lord speaking. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. There's the presence. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord. Skip down to verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Stop there. The context here. God's saying, I'm going to deliver you. The people respond, as we've seen in many of the other passages. How? What are we supposed to do? How do we live in light of this? What's our response of faith? And here's what God says. But you will ask, how are we to return to you? Verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. There's the stealing. They were robbing God. They were stealing from him. How? The next passage, in your tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. 
Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I want to be very careful here. Because some of you are going to go away from here and go, oh, it's another pastor and he's teaching about tithing and he's just getting us to give more money. I want you to hear me very clearly. Scripture clearly teaches that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you must trust him with your money. You must give. You must. It's an expression of faith. I also want you to hear, I did not come to this passage wanting to preach on that. I want you to hear that from me. John Piper talks about when pastors study the word of God, you should beat your head against the text. And as I studied this and I looked at the pattern and I said, where in the Old Testament is this, is this found? And I found this text. I could be wrong. I might stand before God someday and God might go, Dave, you totally blew it on that day. That's not what I meant at all. But I see the pattern. Throughout the New Testament, such as Acts 2, chapter 2, verse 45, says they, the Christians, sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They cared for needs by giving to each other. Throughout the Old Testament, they expressed their faith that God is the creator and sustainer of all things by taking of even their meager means and giving tithes and offerings so that the temple could be maintained, so that the priests could do what they needed to do, and yes, even so people could be helped. When you come to the New Testament, it's a little bit more loose in the system. Sometimes Paul collects offerings and he takes them to Jerusalem. Sometimes they're just meeting needs within the church, giving and selling or sharing of goods. But the point is still the same. They're trusting God with what God has given them. And the expression of that trust is giving. Are you robbing God this morning? Now listen to me very clearly. I want you to know, God takes care of us as a church. We don't need your money. We've got God. If you're here and and you think this is another money-grubbing pastor, listen to me very carefully. You must give. It is an absolute application of Scripture. Give somewhere else. I don't care. You need to be responsible to God. We don't need your money. Give somewhere else. Send it to a missions agency. Send it somewhere else. Treasurers always cringe when I say these things. But I believe it to the core of my soul. Our job as leaders of the church is to trust God for what he gives us. Your job as participants in the church is to trust God for he gives you. Give it somewhere else if you think I'm being manipulative. I don't care. But be faithful to God's call. Don't rob him. The New Testament community is to be characterized by faith in God's provision if they believe that they are saved by Christ and that he is their Lord and Savior, it was to express themselves in how they dealt with their money, sharing with those in need. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. He says in verses 29 through 30, they are to speak goodness. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The unwholesome talk here is not just bad words. He's not talking just about swearing. It probably applies to that. But it's more than that. It's it's hurtful words. It's words that put others down, speaking unkindly or negative, negatively. Instead, he says, that's not what you're to do. You are instead to speak words that build others up. He says, why? To benefit those who listen. In the Greek there, literally, this is a beautiful phrase, it's to give grace. Look throughout the book of Ephesians at the number of times grace is mentioned. It is all over the book. 
Jesus Christ came for grace. We are saved by grace. The New Testament church and the church today was shaped by grace. Our mission is carried out in grace. We are gifted by God's grace to carry out that mission. And even in the tiniest words and the way we speak to each other, we are to exhibit and demonstrate grace. Speak goodness. Speak grace to one another. And again, He grounds this in Scripture right in your notes because we don't have time to turn there. Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 10. In Isaiah 63, the prophet is recalling God's salvation from Israel back in the Exodus. And he says that during that time in the desert, they grieved God's Holy Spirit. And look at what he says in verse 30 of Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How did they grieve him in the Old Testament? They complained bitterly. They murmured against him every step along the way, expressing doubt and frustration in what God was doing. Now, hopefully I don't have to tell you today, don't do that. Don't do that with God. Trust him. But That's not actually what Paul's talking about, is it? He's talking about how we treat each other. So what's? how did he connect these things? If Jesus Christ died for you and he saved you and he's at work in you and I speak unkind things about you, I'm not just hurting you ultimately, am I? I'm grieving God because you're his creation. He saved you. When we speak about brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be very careful for they are God's children and he is at work and he is not done with them yet. We need to forgive offenses. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The thing they are to put off and get rid of is listed as a whole list of things. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. It's a progression. Bitterness is sort of this root, this little subtle thought and feeling that, ah, this person annoys me. And that root takes hold and it begins to grow. And it begins to fester into anger and rage. That's the boiling over of the bitterness and the anger. And then it keeps going into brawling and slander. Brawling is the physical expression of anger. Slander is the verbal expression of anger. And then he says it ends up with every form of malice. It's the heart's attitude of just being so completely against somebody that it doesn't matter what they do. And he says you've got to stop that. And the opposite is be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, Why? Because it's helpful in the church, obviously. Because it's good for your soul, definitely. Because it's good for the other person, certainly. But that's not the ultimate reason. It's because we have a Savior. And that's how He treated us. We are to forgive as Christ forgave us. Throughout Scripture, this principle is upheld. Jesus tapped into this idea in Matthew 18 when he shared the parable of the unmerciful servant who went to his master, owed more than he could ever possibly repay in his lifetime, and his master forgave him. But then he went to his fellow servant who owed him a small sum, and he refused to forgive him. 
And the principle is, if you truly accept and understand the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ, you need to extend that to others, as hard as it may be, to demonstrate who Christ is. And that's where he ends up in this passage. Everything that we do is to be a demonstration of Christ. Not us, not our common sense, not what's going to make everything work out the way we want, but to love like Christ Follow God's example. This is chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Christ is our ultimate example. We don't get to come together and say, how do we do this? How do we figure out? We say, let's look to Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Until you can look an enemy in the face, an enemy that hates you, that maybe has been out to get you and to hurt you, and you can, through the eyes of God's grace, love that person, you have not yet loved like Christ. It is a high and difficult calling. But ultimately, all these things are because they display the gospel that Paul has been talking about all along. Living in this new community is not just about having fun together. It's about applying our faith to even the most difficult circumstances between each other. So that when we see each other and the world sees us, they see the gospel in action. A new community. And when they say, why? We can say, come and let me tell you about Jesus that makes all this possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, these things are difficult. There are circumstances that these apply to that are horrifically difficult. And yet, if you can look at us in our sin and rebellion under your wrath and send your son to die for us, may we then live that out in faith. The way we treat each other, the way we interact with each other, speak about each other, help each other out. Because God, just as in the Old Testament, the people, your people were in a difficult place, so today we are in a difficult place. And the people of this world need to see a demonstration of the gospel. And you've put us here for that very purpose. And so like Paul, I believe, is calling the Ephesian community, I call us to be serious about our application about these things, to live out our faith, trusting that you are here, you are at work, you have a plan, and we will live each and every day in response and in trust to that plan. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.